Mark 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. Jesus is speaking probably to the Sadducees, certainly the religious leaders. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, as uh, many of you know, I enjoy playing role-playing games. Um, not that I've got much time nowadays, but uh, the popularity of RPGs, particularly Dungeons and Dragons, uh, has been around. Uh, has really exploded in the last decade. I think the internet has made everything more accessible, including gaming. And uh, all kinds of people play all kinds of styles. You've probably heard D&D, but of D&D, but that's not the only one. But D&D is the granddaddy. It's been around for a few decades now, 50 years or something, and it's changed a lot in that time. So a bunch of you right now are getting glazed over and some of you are geeking out, right? But uh, there's a point to this story. It's been around for so long, there's a small but very loud uh, chorus of what we call in the hobby grognards telling the new kids, you're doing it wrong. Um, there's always someone who wants to tell you how to have fun, right? And uh, so these people are often rightly called out for gatekeeping the hobby, um, or at least they're trying to. It usually doesn't work. Well, Jesus was having a clash with some religious grognards, some gatekeepers who were telling him and the people, you're doing it wrong. Now, just if you were here in the last couple of weeks, a day or two previously, uh, Jesus cursed a fig tree and overturned the tables of the temple traders in the temple grounds as a prophetic act against the old regime the old religious regime, that is. And Jesus was introducing a new way for people to be right with God, to have a relationship with God, one that didn't rely on the old rules and the old styles of the religious establishment. And if he hadn't antagonized the religious leaders enough through those acts that he'd done, he then tells them this parable to their face. Now, as you read this, parable, if you've been tracking with us, you might start to recognize some of the symbolism Jesus used. And you might also guess that there's probably an Old Testament tie-in in these verses. And sure enough, the parable that Jesus uses 
draws our attention very deliberately to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. It's called the Song of the Vineyard, and Jesus actually uses some of the language from that vineyard, uh, from that, that prophecy. So Isaiah 5, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug a wine press there. He expected to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear it down its wall and it will be trampled. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. So this song of the vineyard was a dire warning against Israel uh, that a terrible judgment was about to fall on them because the land was full of idolatry and injustice. But there are some important differences between Isaiah's song and Jesus' parable. Now, in both passages, Israel is the vineyard. And Israel certainly did come under extreme punishment uh, when the Babylonians invaded around 600 BC. But unlike in Isaiah's day, where Jesus was pronouncing judgment on the whole nation, here he seems to be pronouncing a judgment not so much on the nation, but on its religious leaders. You see, in the story, Jesus singles out the workers who had rented the vineyard from the owner. Like the tenants of uh, the tenant farmers of Jesus' day, he's drawing on a very common image in, in his day. Um, the, store, the farmers in the story didn't own the land. Uh, they only rented it. And the rent was usually a portion of the harvest that they brought in. And so they would pay a portion of their harvest to the owner. In the same way as the people in the story who uh, got a little bit greedy, the religious leaders had forgotten that the law and the temple that they were guardians of wasn't about them. They were only stewards of it. And, uh, and their payment to God was a people who lived in freedom uh, and justice and right relationships with God and one another. Like the tenant farmers in the story, through the centuries, God had sent servants, the prophets, uh, time and again to collect the rent, so to speak, from the leaders, and all they did was abuse and kill them. And the final prophet God sent was John the Baptist, who had only recently been murdered by Herod Antipas. And now the owner of the vineyard, God, had sent his son. Surely they will respect my son, but not. In the logic of the parable, probably the farmers assumed that the son was coming to collect his inheritance if the owner himself hadn't come, uh, and they assumed because it was because the owner had died. Now, under the laws of the land of that day, if the estate had no heir, then it could sometimes go to the tenants, and so they thought, here's our chance. We'll kill the son, there'll be no heir, we get to collect the inheritance. And so not only do they kill the son, but they treat the body shamefully, 
um, not even giving him a proper burial. They tried to erase the memory of him from the farm. Well, the Sadducees acted like the temple was their right rather than something they were entrusted with. The Sadducees were, were from the priestly caste and the priests had special privilege. You could only be a priest by descent. Not anyone could apply for the job, so to speak. And they were there, they were meant to be for the benefit of the people. And instead they were acting as its gatekeepers, locking people out of God's kingdom and using God's people to make themselves rich and powerful. And the Sadducees were quite powerful. Of course, they really didn't see themselves as rebelling against God. They saw themselves as preserving the traditions and the sacred things, both from the Gentiles on the one hand and from the unrighteous rabble and false teachers and so on uh, that threatened everything. In reality, they were so blind that they, they couldn't see what they'd become. They were more interested in preserving their position their temple and uh, what we call its cult, which isn't how we think of a cult today, but the things they did in the temple, the ceremonies and everything, rather than kingdom of God, justice and right relationships. Despite all that, you notice the patience of the owner? He sends servants time after time after time, giving these tenant farmers a chance, but they just spit in his face. And now their time has come. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 when he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the cornerstone was the most important stone in the building. Everything else is built on and around that cornerstone. But notice something else in this story. God didn't reject Israel per se. His son had come to claim what was his. In this case, some of the harvest from the farm. So God wasn't rejecting the farm, Israel, so to speak, but he was um, changing, rejecting the spiritual system the nation was built on. That had to be replaced. And so the farmer gave it to others, the owner gave it to other farmers. So who were these other farmers that the father, the well, the father gave it gave it to, the owner gave it to. Well, Jesus doesn't tell us, but I think, you know what, the apostles are a pretty good bet. The apostles were entrusted with the teaching of the gospel. It's not just a change of tenets, of course, but the whole system of, of the temple and the law is replaced by the gospel of grace. And the vineyard has grown to encompass the whole world, including we Gentiles. It's a massive change. Everything is about to change at the cross. And so what, what do we do about this? What about us? I, I think there's an encouragement and a warning in these words for us. As we approach Easter uh, in this season of Lent, um, this parable is a wonderful reminder of what Jesus has done. As I said, everything changes at the cross. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 20, we read, in Christ Jesus, we Gentiles who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both groups one, that's Jews and Gentiles, and uh, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law 
so that he might create in himself one new person from the two, resulting in peace. For through him we both have access to one spirit, uh, in one spirit to the Father. So then we Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You know, throughout history, the church has grappled with the place of Israel and the Jews in the gospel. Sometimes some people write them off. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel, his people. And in Romans 11, uh, 28 and 29, we read, Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Let me say that again, irrevocable, that's better. God hasn't rejected the Jewish people as a people. Um, He did away with their religious system as a means to be made right with God and to be identified as God's people and replaced it with Jesus. And so no more priests, no more gatekeeping the way into God's kingdom. Jesus is the only gate and there's other parables about that. And on that basis, everyone, Jew or Gentile, have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit through faith. So relationship with God isn't built on ethnic identity or religious practice. It's by the Holy Spirit that we all come, Jew and Gentile, into the fullness of the life that Jesus has opened up for us. And so, you know, religion, people think, Christianity, we are a religion, we do religious things, but the reality is that when we come here and gather, it's not so that we can be made right with God, it is because we have been made right with God and we come to celebrate and remind ourselves of that and grow in that. And that's great news. But there's a warning also. God intended Israel to be a light to the nations, but the religious leaders particularly had become its gatekeepers. And gatekeeping happens in every community, right? Not, not just in the church, not just in among grognards playing old games. And sometimes gatekeeping is valid. It's, it's necessary. You know, in our society, it's popular to let people identify as whatever they want. So if someone identifies as a Christian in the popular imagination, then the culture says that, well, they're a Christian. That's how they identify. How can you tell them? They're not a Christian, regardless of how they act or what they believe. Jesus doesn't see it that way. He said that following him is hard. You know, you can call yourself a hamburger for all I care. I'm not going to eat you. And in fact, he said that we have to choose a narrow gate to find life. So the there is a gate and there is a gatekeeper, Jesus. But, so it's not gatekeeping per se, but the kind of gatekeeping that Jesus was down on was keeping out people who wanted to go through the gate, who wanted to find the narrow path, who wanted to identify with God, but who weren't deemed good enough by the establishment. And so the gospel of grace says you actually don't have to be good enough to go through You just have to trust Jesus 
who happens to be both the gate and the gatekeeper. So here's the thing. How do you get through the gate? How do you get into the kingdom of God? It ain't what you know. It's who you know. You make friends with the gatekeeper. I know in some cultures you sort of got to slip the gatekeeper a fiver. To, you don't even have to do that. You just got to become friends. Becoming good enough is what happens after we pass through the gate and enter God's vineyard and he starts to change us. And, of course, that's a lifelong journey that we won't finish this side of eternity. And so the warning for us, really just a self-reflection, is are there ways we act as unhelpful gatekeepers? Not people who are at the gate trying to help people find it and get in, but closing the gate to them, sometimes actively, sometimes we don't mean to, it's passive. We just make it hard for people to enter the vineyard. Well, sometimes it's easy to be blind to the attitudes and extra rules we create that keep people away. Um, Now, we do need to be clear about what it takes to enter the, the kingdom of God, God's vineyard, it does actually take a complete change of heart and mind. We have to repent. But the way is open to anyone who wants to take that path, even if they stumble every step along the way. Jesus didn't say we have to walk the path perfectly. He just said we have to walk it. But I think perhaps for us even a bigger problem can be passive gatekeeping. It's not that we want to keep others out, but we do it because we don't let them know that there even is a gate. Are there people in our lives who, if they knew about the gate, Jesus, they'd be like, yeah, I want some of that. I want to go that way. But no one's ever told them about it. No one's ever invited them to walk through. You know, sometimes we we even gatekeep ourselves. I talk to people often who I'm not good enough. I've sinned. I've stumbled. I backslid. I've done this. I've done that. I've taken drugs. I've slept around. Whatever. Oh, I just don't belong. I don't belong in this crowd. Look at all the shiny faces here. And all the shiny faces are saying, you have no idea what's going on in my life. We have a kind of imposter syndrome. Does anyone else feel like that sometimes? You walk into a place, you've got a job or something like that, and you're like, how did I get here? I do not belong in this place. And we do that with faith sometimes as well. So I want to say, you know, the warning is don't lock yourself out because, it's again, it's not about how good we are but how good God is. And who you know, and you know someone good. So let's not sort of accidentally lock other people out by making rules. Let's not accidentally lock other people out by not telling them. And let's let's not lock ourselves out through false guilt because Jesus has dealt with our guilt. Well, everything was about to change as Jesus approached his death. Humanity's relationship with God was about to have a whole new foundation. 
God's son was coming to the vineyard to collect what was rightfully his. The old ways with their rules and gatekeeping were going out. The gate to the vineyard was going to be opened to anyone who wanted to enter. The key is trusting Jesus. And so again, I want to say, is there someone in your life who you think needs to find that key, is looking for that key? Don't lock them out. Have you locked yourself out? Well, the gate is open to you as well, simply by trusting Christ. I just want to invite you to turn the key of faith and enter in and invite others to turn that key as well. Let's pray as the band comes up. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, as I contemplate your scripture time and time again, we we do see you can be an angry God. You get outraged. But, Father, it's, it's never at people who are struggling. Father, it's it's always at the proud and the arrogant, the people who lock others out, who want to gatekeep, who want to put others down and lift themselves up rather than humbling themselves and lifting others up. And Father, we thank you that you let even us into your vineyard. May we enter in freely and enjoy its fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.